Orpheus and the Son of Man. Beauty and the Beast is a fairy tale with the quality of a wildflower appearing so unexpectedly and creating in us such a natural sense of wonder that we do not notice for the moment that it belongs to a definite class, genus and species of plant. The kind of mystery inherent in such a story is giving, given a universal application, not only in a larger historical myth, but also in the rituals whereby the myth is expressed or from which it might be derived. The type of ritual and myth appropriately expressing this type of psychological experience is exemplified in the Greco-Roman religion of Dionysus and in its successor the religion of Orpheus. Both of these religions provided a significant initiation of the type known as mysteries. They brought forth symbols associated with a god-man of androgynous character who was supposed to have an intimate understanding of the animal or plant world and to be the master of initiation into their secrets. The Dionysiac religion contained orgiastic rites that implied the need for an initiate to abandon himself to his animal nature and thereby experience the full fertilizing power of the Earth Mother. The initiating agent for this rite of passage in the Dionysiac ritual was wine. It was supposed to produce the symbolic lowering of consciousness necessary to introduce the novice into the closely guarded secrets of nature, whose essence was expressed by a symbol of erotic fulfillment. The god Dionysus joined with Ariadne, his consort, in a sacred marriage ceremony. In time, the rites of Dionysus lost their emotive religious power. There emerged an almost oriental longing for liberation from their exclusive preoccupation with the purely natural symbols of life and love. The Dionysiac religion, shifting constantly from spiritual to physical and back again, perhaps proved too wild and turbulent for some more ascetic souls. These came to experience their religious ecstasies inwardly in the worship of Orpheus. Orpheus was probably a real man, a singer, prophet and teacher who was martyred and whose tomb became a shrine. No wonder the early Christian church saw in Orpheus the prototype of Christ. Both religions brought to the late Hellenistic world the promise of a future, divine life. Because they were men, yet also mediators of the divine, for the multitudes of the dying Grecian culture in the days of the Roman Empire, they held, they held the longed-for hope of a future life. There was, however, one important difference between the religion of Orpheus and the religion of Christ. Though sublimated into a mystical form, the Orphic mysteries kept alive the old Dionysiac religion. The spiritual impetus came from a demigod, 
in whom was preserved the most significant quality of a religion rooted in the art of agriculture. That quality was the old pattern of the fertility gods, who came only for the season, in other words, the eternally recurrent cycle of birth, growth, fullness and decay. Christianity, on the other hand, dispelled the mysteries. Christ was the product and reformer of a patriarch patriarchal nomadic pastoral religion, whose prophets represented their Messiah as a being of absolutely divine origin. The Son of Man, though born of a human virgin, had his beginning in heaven, whence he came in act in an act of God's incarnation in man. After his death he returned to heaven, but returned once and for all to reign on the right hand of God until the second coming when the dead shall arise. Left Orpheus charming the beasts with his song in a Roman mosaic above the murder of Orpheus by Thracian women on a Greek vase. Above Christ as the Good Shepherd, a 6th century, century mosaic, both Orpheus and Christ parallel the archetype of the man of nature, also reflected in the painting by Cranach below of natural man's innocence. The asceticism of early Christianity did not last. The memory of the cyclic mysteries haunted its followers, to the extent that the church eventually had to incorporate many practices from the pagan past into its rituals. The most meaningful of these may be found in the old records of what was done on Holy Saturday and Easter Sunday in celebration of the Resurrection of Christ. The baptismal service that the medieval church made into a suitable and deeply meaningful initiation rite. But that ritual has scarcely survived into modern times and it is completely absent in Protestantism. The ritual that has survived much better and that still contains the meaning of a central initiation mystery for the devout is the Catholic practice of the elevation of the chalice. It has been described by Dr. Jung in his Transformation Symbolism in the Mass. The lifting up of the chalice in the air prepares the spiritualization of the wine. This is conf confirmed by the invocation to the Holy Ghost that immediately follows. The invocation serves to infuse the wine with the Holy Spirit, for it is the Holy Ghost who begets, fulfills and transforms. After the elevation the chalice was in former times set down to the right of the host to correspond with the blood that flowed from the right side of Christ. The ritual of communion is everywhere the same, whether it is expressed by drinking of the cup of Dionysus 
more of the holy Christian chalice. But the level of awareness each brings to the individual participant is different. The Dionysiac participant looks back to the origin of things, to the storm birth of the god who is blasted from the resistant womb of Mother Earth. In the frescoes of the Villa de Misteri in Pompeii, the enacted rite evoked the god as a mask of terror reflected in the cup of Dionysus offered by the priest to the initiate. Later we find the winnowing basket with its precious fruits of the earth and the phallus as creative symbols of the god's manifestation as the principle of breeding and growth. In contrast to this backward look, with its central focus on nature's eternal cycle of birth and death, the Christian mystery points forward to the initiate ultimate hope of union with a transcendent God. Mother Nature, with all her beautiful seasonal changes, has been left behind and the central figure of Christianity offers spiritual certainty for he is the son of God in heaven. Yet the two somehow fuse in the figure of Orpheus, the god who remembers Dionysus, Dionysus but looks forward to Christ. The psychological sense of this intermediate figure has been described by the Swiss author Linda Fierce David in her interpretation of the Orphic rite pictured in the Villa dei Misteri. Orpheus thought while he sang and played the, li the lyre, and his singing was so powerful that it mastered all nature. When he sang to his lyre, the birds flew about him, the fish left the water and sprang to him, the wind and the sea, the sea became still. The rivers flowed upward toward him. It did not snow, and there was no hail. Trees and the very stones followed after Orpheus. Tiger and lion lay down near him next to the sheep, and the wolves next to the stag and the roe. Now, what does this mean? It surely means that through a divine insight into the meaning of natural events. Nature's happenings become harmoniously ordered from within. Everything becomes light and all creatures are appeased when the mediator, in the act of worshipping, represents the light of nature. Orpheus is an embodiment of devotion and piety. He symbolizes the religious attitude that solves all conflicts since thereby the whole soul is turned toward that which lies on the other side of all conflict. And as he does this, he is truly Orpheus, that is, a good shepherd, his primitive embodiment. Both as good shepherd and mediator, Orpheus strikes the balance between the Dionysiac religion and the Christian religion, since we find both Dionysus and Christ in similar roles, though, as I have said, differently oriented as to time and direction in space. One is a cyclic religion of the netherworld, the other heavenly and 
eschatological or final. This series of initiatory events drawn from the context of religious history is repeated endlessly and with practically every conceivable individual twist of meaning in the dreams and fantasies of modern people. In a state of heavy fatigue and depression, a woman undergoing analysis has had this fantasy. I sit on the side of a long narrow table in a high vaulted room with no window. My body is hunched over and shrunken. There is nothing over me but a long white line and cloth that hangs from my shoulders to the floor. Something crucial has happened to me. There is not much life left in me. Red crosses on gold disc, discs appear before my eyes. I recall that I have made some sort of commitment a long time ago and wherever I am now must be part of this. I sit there a long time. Now I slowly open my eyes and I see a man who sits beside me, who is still, who is to heal me. He appears natural and kind, and he is talking to me, though I don't hear him. He seems to know all about where I have been. I am aware that I am very ugly, and that there must be an odor of death around me. I wonder if he will be repelled. I look at him for a very long time. He does not turn away. I breathe more easily. Then I feel a cool breeze or cool water pour over my body. I wrap the white line and cloth across me now and prepare for a natural sleep. The man's healing hands are on my shoulders. I recall vaguely that there was a time when there were wounds there, but the pressure of his hands seems to give me strength and healing. This woman had previously felt threatened by doubts about her original religious affiliation. She had been brought up as a devout Catholic of the old school, but since her youth she had struggled to free herself from the formal religious conventions followed by her family. Yet the symbolic events of the church year and the richness of her insight into their meaning remained with her throughout the process of her psychological change, and in her analysis I found this working knowledge of religious symbolism most helpful. The significant, the significant elements she singled out of her fantasy were the white cloth which she understood as a sacrifice, sacrificial cloth, the vaulted room which she considered to be a tomb, and her commitment which she associated with the experience of submission. This commitment, as she called it, suggested a ritual of initiation with a perilous descent into the vault of death, which symbolized the way she had left church and family to experience God in her own fashion. She had undergone an imitation of Christ in the true symbolic sense, and like him she had suffered the wounds that preceded his death.
The sacrifice the sacrificial cloth suggests the winding sheet or shroud in which the crucified Christ was wrapped and then placed in the tomb. The end of the fantasy introduces the healing figure of a man loosely associated with me as her analyst, but appearing also in his natural role as a friend fully aware of her experience. He speaks to her in words she cannot yet hear, but his hands are reassuring and give a sense of healing. One senses in this figure the touch and the word of the good shepherd Orpheus or Christ, as mediator and also, of course, as healer. He is on the side of life and has to convince her that she may now come back from the vault of death. Shall we call this rebirth of or resurrection? Both, perhaps, or neither. The essential rite pro proclaims itself at the end the cool breeze of, or water flowing over her body is the primordial act of purification or cleansing of the scene of death the essence of true baptism the same woman had another fantasy in which she felt that her birthday fell upon the day of christ's resurrection this was much more meaningful for her than the memory of her mother who had never given her the feeling of reassurance and renewal she so much wished for on her childhood birthdays. But this did not mean she identified herself with the figure of Christ. For all his power and glory something was lacking, and she tried to reach him through prayer. He and his cross were lifted up to heaven, out of her human reach. In this second fantasy, she fell back upon the symbol of rebirth as a rising sun, and a new feminine symbol began to make its appearance, its appearance. First of all, it appeared as an embryo in a watery sack. Then she was carrying an eight-year-old boy through the water, passing a danger point. Then a new movement occurred in which she no longer felt threatened, or under the influence of death. She was in a forest by a little spring waterfall. Green vines grow all around. In my hands I have a stone bowl in which there is spring water, some green moss and violets. I bathe myself under the waterfall. It is golden and silky and I feel like a child. The sense of these events is clear, though it is possible to miss the inner meaning in the cryptic description of so many changing images. Here we have, it seems, a process of rebirth in which a larger spiritual self is reborn and baptized in nature as a child. Meanwhile, she has rescued an older child who was in some way her own ego at the most traumatic period of her childhood. She then carried it through water past the danger point, thus indicating her fear of a paralyzing sense of guilt. If she should depart too far from her family's conventional religion. But religious symbolism is significant by its absence 
all is in the hands of nature we are clearly in the realm of the shepherd Orpheus rather than the risen Christ. A dream followed this sequence which brought her to a church resembling the church in Assisi with Giotto's frescoes of Saint Francis. She felt more at home here than she would in other churches because Saint Francis like Orpheus was a religious man of nature. This revived her feelings about the change in her religious affiliation that had been so painful to undergo, but now she believed she could joyfully face the experience, inspired by the light of nature. The series of dreams ended with a distant echo of the religion of Dionysus. One could say that this was a reminder that even Orpheus can at times be a little too far removed from the fecundating power of the animal god in man. She dreamed that she was uh, leading a fair-haired child by the hand. We are happily participating in a festival that includes the sun and the forests and flowers all around. The child has a little white flower in her hand and she places it on the head of a black bull. The bull is part of the festival and is covered with festive decorations. This reference recalls the ancient rites that celebrated Dionysus in the guise of a bull. But the dream did not end there, the woman added. Some time later the bull is pierced by a golden arrow. Now, besides Dionysus, there is another pre-Christian rite in which the bull plays a symbolic role. The Persian sun god Mithras sacrifices a bull. He, like Orpheus, represents the longing for a life of the spirit that might triumph over the primitive animal passions of man and, after a ceremony of initiation, give him peace. This series of images confirms a suggestion that is found in many fantasy or dream sequences of this type, that there is no final peace, no resting point. In their religious quest, men and women, especially those who live in modern Western Christianized societies, are still in the power of those early traditions that strive within them for supremacy. It is a conflict of pagan or Christian beliefs, or one might say of rebirth and resurrection. The Persian god Mithras sacrificing the bull. The sacrifice, also part of Dionysiac rites, can be seen as a symbol of the victory of man's spiritual nature over his animality, of which the bull is a common symbol. A more direct clue to the solution of this dilemma is to be found in this woman's first fantasy, in a curious piece of symbolism that could easily be overlooked. The woman says that in her death vault she saw before her eyes a vision of red crosses on gold discs, as became clear later in her analysis she was about to experience a profound psychic change and to emerge out of this death into a new kind of life.
we might imagine therefore that this image which came to her in the depth of her despair of life should in some way herald her future religious attitude in her subsequent work she did in fact produce evidence for thinking that the red crosses represented her devotion to the christian attitude while the gold disc represented her devotion to the pre-christian mystery religions her vision had told her that she must reconcile those christian and pagan elements in the new life that lay ahead one last but important observation concerns the ancient rites and their relation to christianity the initiation rites celebrated in the eleusian mysteries the rites of worship of the fertility goddesses demeter and persephone was not considered appropriate merely for those who sought to live life more abundantly it was also used as a preparation for death as if death also required an initiatory rite of passage of the same kind on a funeral urn in a roman grave near the columbarium on the esquiline hill we find a clear bas relief representing scenes of the final stage of initiation where the novice is admitted to the presence and converse of the goddesses the rest of the design is devoted to two preliminary ceremonies of purification the sacrifice of the mystic pig and the mysticized version of the sacred marriage this all points to an initiation into death but in a form that lacks the finality of mourning it hints at that element of the later mysteries especially of orphism which makes death carry a promise of immortality christianity went even further it promised something more than immortality which in the old sense of the cyclic mysteries might merely mean reincarnation for it offered the faithful an everlasting life in heaven so we see again in modern life the tendency to repeat old patterns those who have to learn to face death may have to relearn the old message that tells us that death is a mystery for which we must prepare ourselves in the same spirit of submission and humility as we once learned to prepare ourselves for life thank you for listening